I literally had zero contacts, Jesse, when I started. Like, I did not even know, how do I even find the VCs? How do I find the people with the money? That was me, right? And now I'm on the other side where I literally have investors reaching out to me now. Welcome to the Startup CPG podcast. I'm your host, Jesse Freitag. I love that I get to bring you more Shark Tank content so soon and with one of my favorite people. Today's guest is Sandra Velasquez, the CEO and founder of Nopalera and a very early member of the Startup CPG community. Nopalera creates Mexican botanicals for bath and body, and as you'll hear, have become a staple in my own life. Sandra appeared on Shark Tank last month during season 14, episode 12, and I'm so glad she agreed to come on the show and share all the details with us. You don't need to pre-watch the episode to enjoy the conversation, but I definitely recommend tuning in when you get a chance to watch Sandra's incredible pitch and how she gracefully received and ultimately turned down two offers from the Sharks. Nopalera also recently closed a fundraising round of $2.7 million unrelated to Shark Tank. Listen is as Sandra shares about the process of applying to Shark Tank and preparing to air from the opening pitch to outfit vetting, how eerily quiet the time in the tank is, Sandra's affirmations and prep going into the tank, how her team prepped for consumer demand and the real numbers from Amazon and their website after airing. Sandra really gives us the nitty gritty details here and I love it. The process of raising $2.7 million, including valuation work and legal fees to expect. How Sandra developed a fundraising network from scratch. What's next at Nopalera and more. You may also notice our intro music is a little different. I wanted to feature a song from Sandra's band, Pistolera. And this is Nuevos Ojos, which was featured in Season 4, Episode 12 of the show Breaking Bad. Now let's hear from Sandra. Hi, Sandra. Welcome to the show today. How are you? I'm great, Jesse. So good to see you. Yeah, so good to see you as well. It's great to have you here. And it was so fun to watch your Shark Tank episode that we're going to talk about today. Um, I get like I had like friends over and everything that like we watched it on Hulu the next day because we didn't have access to ABC. But we had a little we had our own little watch party uh, when awesome. it, right when it aired on Hulu. And that was that was so much fun. So yeah, could you start us off by telling us a little bit about yourself and about Nopalera? Sure. Well, so I used to be a musician. I thought that that's why I was put on earth was to write songs and tour the country and make albums. And I had no no idea or inclination or plans to become an entrepreneur, let alone a beauty entrepreneur. And it just kind of happened. It just evolved this way. I found myself unemployed at the age of 43. Uh, I used to, you know, work in CPG sales and it was just a moment of really self-responsibility, honestly, because, you know, the funny thing about being unemployed is that you all of a sudden have time to think (laughs) Uh, because when you're employed and you're busy, you're just like day to day, day to day, like, you know, and so it was this moment of like, wow, okay, I really am like at, at this like fork in the road in my life. I can either try to go get yet another CPG sales job and go down this path, or I can start something new. And you know, when you have nothing to lose, it's like, well, what do I have to lose? You know, so I had this idea to start this, you know, Nopalera, this high-end Latina brand that would really disrupt the beauty space, which has, you know, historically been Eurocentric, French and Italian brands, and kind of makes no sense anymore because that's not really who who lives here. <laughs> you know, it's not reflective of like who lives here and who is spending money in this category. So it was a bold move to say, hey, I'm unemployed. I have no money. I have no savings. But let me just start a high-end Latina brand. Um, and But that's what I did. So I launched in the pandemic. You know, we make body care products. So soaps, scrubs, um, solid lotion bars, and obviously working on new products as well. Awesome. Yeah, I, I think I must have met you. It must have been like a year ago now. And, you know, I was I was prepping for a call with you. I was listening to a podcast you'd recently done at that time. And you were mentioning like, you know, all the, why, why do we pay so much money for these? Like you're, why is it when something says a fancy French word that we're willing to just fork out, you know, endless money for it? And I was like, that's so true. I was like, why don't like, why, why, when I'm at the store, am I, you know, I'm like, oh, that makes sense that that lotion's $14 and it has a French name. And I was like, mm-hmm. I need some Nopalera in my life. And so I put in an order and I've got my, like the, the moisturizing bar, like seriously, like, I became immediately obsessed and the sharks uh, loved it as well. But like, <laughs> I remember last, I last year before the summer, your, your, you know, your, your email campaign came out of get your moisturizer bars before they melt in the mail. And I 
stocked up and I, you know, I may have accidentally purchased a lifetime supply because they last, <laughs> they last so long, but I just, oh, I love them so much. I don't really like lotion. I love that there's like not the plastic packaging. It's just like, it's such high quality and then the soaps and the scrubs like so I'm like I'm truly like a big fan like using the products like they're really incredible and like they're they're amazing premium products so I love that you've like you know that you're bringing this to consumers and showing people that there are there are more ways there are more options for premium beauty products. <laughs> Thank you. I appreciate that. So how would you describe like Nopalera's stage right now? Like, you know, how many retail doors, like, you know, what major retailers are you in? How many employees do you have? Just to kind of get a sense of where the business is at right now. Yeah. So, you know, I started and it was just me, right? I think it's important to say like how I started, which was just me making the products in my Brooklyn apartment. I made the products myself for the first year, which I don't recommend. I only did that because <laughs> I had no other. I was like, how do I find a co-packer? How do I even find ingredients? How do I find anything? Because this was not the category that I came from. I did not used to work for Estee Lauder. I'm not, I was not a beauty industry insider. And so here where I am today, two years later, is I have nine people on payroll, um, I have a full team, you know, VP of sales, director of ops, two people in marketing. We have in-house brand photographer, videographer, uh, you know, finance team, uh, customer support, uh, kind of like all the key things that you need. And we are now in, I don't know, over 400 retailers. So the name ones that people recognize are Nordstrom, Credo Beauty, Free People. And, you know, the bulk of our wholesale, though, really comes from these 400 plus boutiques that are across the country, which is really our bread and butter and wholesale at the moment. They prepay, they're, they don't require any marketing support, you know, because they're very small and highly curated. So there's just less competition on the shelves. And we love them. I love that we have this channel open to us because as we're a personal care brand, but also a giftable brand. So these, you know, beautiful lifestyle boutiques want to put our product on the shelves. And then really the business is like 50% D2C, 50% wholesale right now. Wow. That's, yeah, that's super helpful. And I'm curious how a lot of our listeners also probably know you from your distro talk class that you did when you did a lot of CPG, you know, food food sales. I'm curious, yeah. like, how did did has that experience and helped in the beauty world or like how different has beauty been compared to, you know, all the time that you spent in CPG food? So there's the similarities are that you have to understand how people work. You have to understand human psychology because as a former sales rep, sales is really just knowing how to have a conversation and making sure that it's centered around the person across the table from you, right? Sales is not pushing an agenda. It's not tricking somebody. It's not trying to convince somebody to buy something from you. It's really understanding what are their needs and how can you position your offering as the opportunity. So that part is super helpful. Um, and and that's really important. That's a, that's just a good skill to have in life in general, because really what it comes down to is empathy. It comes down to understanding what other people need and how can you be the solution to that problem. And that's really when you're building a brand, it should all be about that. It should all be about what people need and what is the problem? How can you provide that solution? And then, you know, position brand positioning, you know, how can you position yourself in the category to stand out? Because I mean, grocery is a great example of like, which cereal do you choose? I mean, the cereal wall is like massive, you know, there's just so many choices. I mean, granted, a lot of them are owned by the same like monopoly, right? But um, so just brand positioning, I think those those are the things that I carried over. What's radically different in beauty is that there's no distributors. And as you know, right from Distro 101, that is what I used to teach people about, about how to work with distributors. Because if you're a food and bev brand and you're trying to go into the grocery space, you're going to work with distributors. And so you're going to need to know how that relationship works? What are those margin requirements? Whereas in beauty, we sell direct. So that's th that's kind of the vast difference. Very interesting. Can you tell us a little bit about like deciding to apply to Shark Tank and like what, yeah, what went into that decision? Had you watched the show before? Was that something when you started, you're like, oh, someday I'm going to apply to Shark Tank or like, tell us a little bit about the background of applying. Yeah. You know, so funny. Of course, I've seen the show. I mean, it's kind of like American Idol, right? Everyone has heard of it or at least seen some part of it, but I didn't originally have any inclination to apply. It wasn't until I talked to a friend of mine who had actually been on the show, another beauty founder, in fact, um, uh, Mabel from Luna Magic. And she was like, oh, sh we were we were just having a normal conversation, not about Shark Tank. And she just in passing said, you should apply to Shark Tank. And I was like, what? No, why would I do that? Like, I, I need to go raise like, you know, lots and lots of money. And, you know, it seemed like a lot of work, you know. Um, and she was like, it's just it's a great opportunity. You should just do it. And I was like, listen, what do I have to lose? Let me just 
you know, at that point, and I still do this, I just apply for everything. And then I kind of forget about it. And if I get like a congratulations email, I'm like, oh, I totally forgot I applied for that. So I applied literally over a year ago. I mean, it was must have been like February or March of 2022. And then got the, you know, the call back to, you know, hey, we're interested to learn more about you. And that, you know, from there all the way till you know, you're at the sound studio. It's like months and months. I mean, it's almost the entire year. So much changed in my business, you know, with everything when I finally got to, you know, the actual studio to to film it. But at that point, it's like you're invested, right? It's like you've put in so much time and energy and literally the just like the hoops that you have to jump through and the paperwork that you need to submit is no different than what you need to submit to investors, you know, financials, you know, intellectual property. Do you own the formulas? You know, uh, who is your team? What are, you know, all of that stuff you need anyway, like in a data room, if you're going to raise money. So I was already doing that anyway. So it was it was a lot of work, but it was work that I was already doing. And, you know, I think the thing that people don't know about Shark Tank is that you can go through all of this process, like months and months of preparation and film it and your episodes still might not air. <laughs> I can't know? imagine the like just how crushing that would be. I know. I know. Like my heart literally breaks for those who have gone through all of that. They literally go into the tank, they do the whole thing, and then like they don't ever get the email that says your episode has been selected to air, you know? So I went in there with full, like in full, you know, I was, I used to be a musician. So I luckily had performing, you know, in my back pocket, I was like, this is a gig. I'm going to perform on stage. I'm going to bring all the energy and treat it like a gig. And so I was just very conscious of the fact that this is a television show. And they're also very clear about this, too. They're like, this is a television show. (laughs) It needs to be entertaining, you know. So I went in there with just, you know, I'm going to leave it all (laughs) on the stage type of vibe. Yeah. Wow. And I think I think I read, too, that you did like you have a really great like affirmations process like you did some like affirmations and everything before you went out I believe can you talk a little bit about that like mental prep it sounds like your musician training really helped but I'm curious too about some of the other prep that you did yes I prepped a lot I mean I already do a lot of you know I do like guided meditations I do a lot of I have like affirmations all over my house on post-it notes I'm very much about that so I you know, went in there like this is an opportunity, not just for me, but for all Latinos, because we are sorely missing on this show. And this is the time, like our time is now. And I'm going to make this about us. I'm going to literally conjure the spirits of all of my ancestors. Like I pictured my grandparents, you know, on my father's side, I pictured my grandparents, you know, on my mother's side and like all the things that they've gone through. And I mean, it sounds like really cheesy, right? It sounds like very woo-woo, but I literally just pretended like they were next to me so that when I walked in the tank, I felt like I was rolling deep. Like I wasn't just me up against the sharks. It was like my entire lineage, you know, on both sides was there standing next to me. And to be honest, I feel like that feeling was felt in the room. And that's why, you know, they were very respectful of me, you know, and even when they declined, it was a very respectful decline. Uh, You know, like Damon John saying like, you know, I'm going to, what I'm going to ask from you is going to be too much and it's not going to be good for you. So for that reason, I'm out. I was like, wow, thank you so much. I really respect where you're coming from with that because you do know that what you're going to ask from me is too much and it's not going to be fair to me, right? And what I'm building. So thank you for removing yourself, you know? And so, yeah, those are the exercises I did. And just, it helps to remove the anxiety about it being so focused on you because I just made it not about me. I felt like I was a messenger. Like someone has to go and stand there and say these things. And right now it's me but I'm going to make this about us. Yeah. I mean, your episode really did have like just a really even it even comes through the TV of like the the vibe. And like you said, like the way the sharks treat you and like all of it, like it's just it's really incredible. So that didn't just happen. Like, you know, there was a lot of prep and it, yeah, intentionality that that you did to to show up in that way. So that's so yeah. cool. Yeah, because, you know, it's a once in a lifetime experience. You don't get to do it twice. So if you were given the opportunity, like any opportunity like that, where it's like, you only get to do this once, then, you know, go go there like you're going to give your Oscar winning speech. <laughs> yeah. And how long were you actually like in the tank talking with the sharks? And like also like I think you mentioned something about it being like kind of eerily quiet, like there's no music in real life. Can you talk a little bit about just like being in there, how long it was, what it's like without the music? Yeah. You know, First of all, they don't allow you to bring your phones into the green room. So I had then there were no clocks. So I literally had no, no, no idea what time it was. 
when I went in, no idea what time it was when I came out. And it felt like it flew by. I felt like I was in the tank for not that long. It felt like 15 minutes. It felt very fast. It was probably closer. I can't imagine that it was more than half an hour, honestly. And some people are in there for like an hour and 20 minutes. They Mm -hmm. don't put a cap on it. They just like kind of let it flow depending on how the conversation is going. But, you know, I was fortunate to have other founder friends who I knew who I could reach out to who had been on the show to tell me like, okay, tell me everything they asked you. What do I need to prepare for? And you can just tell by watching the show, you, you know what kind of baseline questions they ask, like, what are your cogs? You know, what is your, what are your sales? How many retailers are you in, et cetera. But what no one prepared me for was how quiet it was. <laughs> and I was like, why did no one tell me this? You know, uh, like I'm trying to tell everyone now, cause I just actually had a call last night with a, some other founders who are CPG founders who, um, are content are like contenders for next season. And I was like, the first thing you need to know is that it's really quiet. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds so eerie. <laughs> it, it, I know, but it is eerie. And that's, it's only eerie because um, you have to over emote. Like you have to bring the energy, like you have to pretend like there's music playing because mm-hmm. it is a dead, silent soundstage, you know? Um, and that's why they, that's why, you know, you always see the sharks like cutting each other off and like creating drama because they have, you have to create the drama. It's not in the room. Like there's no agitation in the room. It's a soundstage, you know? So that I was like, okay, no one warned me about this. I need to go yell at all my friends. <laughs> Why didn't they tell me? But um, that it was a little awkward. Yeah. And when, can you tell us a little bit about your, like the, you know, the offer that you went in with and then kind of the negotiation process, what was going through your mind live as you got offers? Like, yeah, tell us a little bit about that and and how it works to set an offer because since it's for TV, like does do producers input you like do they give you feedback on your offer? Kind of yeah, all of that. Yeah, absolutely. It's a great question. And yes, they do give you feedback on your offer. Because and I I don't know, I don't have any regrets, but I originally wanted to go and ask for five hundred thousand dollars for like you know I don't know five percent or, or something. Um, and they actually were like, you know, you should. You, you might want to reconsider uh, because the way that the rules of the show work is that you cannot take less than what you go in asking for. So I was like, oh, OK, so I should ask for less and then like go up. You know what I mean? Um, so that's why I changed it to 300,000. And I think the bigger question is is about valuation, which is really tricky. You know, the the people watching you know, at home, they don't know what valuation means. You know, they don't know what 30% of your company really means, you know, uh, pre-money, post-money, like those are all like industry terms, you know? And so it was really tricky because I was also starting to raise by the time I finally got my film date, like now I'm like in full fundraise mode. So now I'm like deep in like valuation and like digging into my financials, you know, and working with a third party to like, you know, back up my, my valuation. And, uh, so it was, it, that's the hardest part, you know, like how do you value a company? And founders ask me this all the time. Like it's one of their biggest hurdles when they're fundraising for the first time. How do you come up with a valuation? And it's like the market decides, like, what does that mean? That's so vague, you know? Um, cause it's like, you know, why is a Picasso worth $40 million? Well, it's because it's worth that because someone decided to pay that and therefore it's worth that. <laughs> you know, I mean, that's a really kind of abstract example, but just right. That's kind of what it is. It's like, it's worth whatever people say it's worth, whatever they're willing to pay for. And so that's the tricky thing about going to Shark Tank, right? Where like Kevin is like, I don't think you're worth $6 million. You know, you're worth a million bucks. And I'm like, oh my God, please. You know, um, so, but again, normal Americans watching don't know what that means, you know? Um, yeah. So that that was tricky, you know, and um, I did have a ceiling in mind. Like I just, I knew that like my lawyers would kill me if I gave away more than 10%. So I was like, we cannot go above 10%. And that's why when the, the quote unquote negotiation began, I was like, well, if you want more equity, it's then now it's $600,000, you know? And then it was like, let me tell you how the show works, you know? (laughs) And the mansplaining from Damon, which, you know, to me just makes me laugh. Um, But, you know, I think everyone, every brand has to go in there with like, okay, here's my ceiling. Like, this is where I'm willing to go up to. And I think the other thing that people might not realize, you know, maybe people that listen to this podcast already know this, but the general public does not realize that just because people say yes on TV does not mean that the deal actually goes through. And so I really went in prepared to just be super honest, (laughs) you know, like I didn't want to say yes if I didn't really want it that, you know, if it wasn't good enough. And so the producers, I think, are also trying to clamp down on people saying yes on TV and then like backing out afterwards. And so they were very clear, like, don't say yes unless you really mean yes. 
And I was like, okay, because they actually said your episode might not air. If we find out that like you're yanking Mark Cuban's chain afterwards, you know, like we might not air your episode. So I was like, okay, I'm going to go in and just be very honest then, you know, um, and that's what I did. Yeah. And that's really interesting that you can't, uh, that you can't take a lower amount. I didn't realize that. That's really interesting that you got that feedback in advance. And and also, I think, you know, I I think it's so cool that you s- stuck to your offer as well, because your brand is so like so all over your branding is stand in your worth. And for <laughs> you to go out there and stand in your worth, like I think that that message, like you said, about being it more beyond more than just you like the the inspiration that you gave to people of of that as well and not making your attorneys upset as well i was literally (laughs) like she's going to kill me if i say yes to this (laughs) yeah Yeah. wow yeah and how would i want to dig into this a little bit more later but for for context too like you know you mentioned that you were fundraising you know by the time you're you're filming the episode like when did you start fundraising compared to when you applied to the show? Like, and mm-hmm. how, what, how did the timing of that kind of dual track with Shark Tank airing? And then we can dig into that more later, but kind of curious on the context. Yeah. So the timing was that I applied for Shark Tank really early in the year, like, you know, March, maybe even February, honestly, like early 2022. I didn't start fundraising until like the end of June. So it was much later in the process, you know, and of course, the, the producers are always like asking you every time they meet with you on Zoom, they're asking you for an update. Like, have you taken an investment yet? Have you has your cap table changed? Has anything changed? Uh, so it was much later. Um, and, you know, then I filmed at the end of July. At that point, I was like in full fundraise mode because, you know, again, a lot, you know, like a lot that happens in the tank doesn't make it to the final episode. And so we did talk about that in the tank. Like Mark Cuban asked me, do you have any offers right now from other investors? And I said, I have some a lot of strong interest, which was true at that time in July. And it wasn't until, you know, the beginning of September. So like a month later that I had, you know, a lead investor say like, OK, we want to be the lead. And then, of course, the angels follow after that. So everything kind of happened in September, like a month and a half after I filmed um, is when I, you know, and I think I closed my seed round in October officially. Uh, so that was kind of the timeline of it. OK, yeah, that's helpful. And you ultimately raised two point seven million dollars. Yeah. Is that right? Yes, 2.7. Okay. And I also like to tell people, be super transparent about this because no one talks about this. When you hear about people raising money, like, okay, I raised 2.7 million, $100,000 goes to legal right out the door. So there's never 2.7 in the bank. So let's be clear about that. <laughs> yeah, no, that's, no one that's talks such about a the legal point. bill. Yes. No one talks about the legal bill. <laughs> yeah. And was it, you mentioned that you got some third party valuation, which I, th- uh, like um, assessments, which I think is really interesting because like you said, so often value, like when I worked a little bit in the angel investing world, it was just like all over the place. Like some investors would have, you know, back of the napkin math that they would do. Some were just kind of like gut feel or they're like, well, how much do you want to raise? And then come up with a number that sounds kind of reasonable to us. Like it was just so arbitrary. So did that like, was that an expensive process as, as well? But did you feel like it was worth it to kind of give you some confidence in going into Shark Tank and fundraising? Yeah. So that last part, right, it's really about that. It's really about giving you the confidence to like back up your valuation um, anywhere, Shark Tank to investors, VCs, right? And, you know, I don't have regrets about doing it. It wasn't actually that expensive, to be honest with you. Um and it wasn't my idea to do it. It was actually my lawyers, my first lawyer. I actually had to change lawyers in the middle of my fundraise to like a bigger firm. But my first lawyer was the one that recommended it. And when I asked other VCs, hey, do you recommend, do you ever ask your, the brands that you're investing in to go out and get like third party, you know, valuation assessments? And they're like, no, never. Don't, don't spend your money on that. But my lawyer really pushed for it. And it was really just about that point that you brought up. It's really just about you being able to have the confidence like you've you've seen the research of the market, you've seen the market comps, you know, because um, they have access to data that we don't us plebeians do not. You know, they have access to like more insider, you know, market comps. But unfortunately, a lot of companies are still private. So like the data is not available. And so therefore it kind of fell short a little bit, but it still gave me it was still valuable. I, you know, it's like, that's, I don't regret it. I can't say that I would recommend like I wouldn't like go out and tell every founder to go like get a third party valuation. Um, so and also the people that I worked with were kind of like generalist, right? So like they didn't really know beauty, you know, so it was like I had to really guide them on like, here are the brands I need you to pull data from. 
Mm. Um, and that was challenging because not not everyone had data available. Yeah, that's super. Help- I appreciate you sharing about the, that, though, because it's helpful to know that you did that in the process. And yeah, it's, valuation is such a tricky topic, as you mentioned, that's such a common question. Um, yeah. So, yeah, just appreciate you you sharing a little bit about that. Yeah. And also, as far as the as as Shark Tank, I'm curious a little bit about the response from consumers and both like I listened to your episode on your podcast, which I highly recommend and I'll link in the, <laughs> the show notes. Uh, one Thank of my you. favorite podcasts, um, but it, where you and your marketing team talked about prepping for the show and kind of like getting numbers from other founders of like, OK, do we, mm-hmm. do we think it's going to be this many orders, this many orders, this many orders? Um, and then I noticed that you did eventually sell out of your Shark Tank bundle. Um, <laughs> yeah. You know, on your, yeah. you know, not eventually, but like you, I saw you uh, in a negative way, but I saw you sell out because I know you've done so much prep. So can you tell us a little bit about like the prep and then the actual and yeah, yeah. what you thought about that process? Yeah, again, rarely fortunate to have a network of other founders that I can go to and say like, what what's going to happen here? Like, what should we be preparing for? And literally the answers were like the range was so wide. You know, I had I talked to because I'm in the Target Accelerator alumni Slack channel. So, you know, I asked in there. I'm in the New Voices Foundation Slack channel. I asked in there and there's founders in both that have been on the show. And so one founder um, said that she only received a thousand orders after the show. And I was like, oh, okay. So that was definitely on the lower side. Most mm-hmm. founders told me to expect around 3000 orders. So that's what we were preparing for. We were like, I told my ops, you know, director of ops, I was like, okay, we need to have 3000 of everything available. And so that's what we had. And then our, our warehouse, our 3PL called and they were like, oh no, you guys need to, it's going to be way more than that. <laughs> you should expect double that. They said we had a baby brand, uh, like a brand that sold baby clothes and they had 7,000 orders. So I was like, oh crap, like we're going to, we're not, we don't have enough. We're going to run out. So, you know, we had our director of ops like double the existing purchase orders that were already out to our co-packers. Um, so we were prepared with inventory to like, to have like, you know, 10,000 of everything just to like be safe. And we ultimately ended up getting uh, 6,000 orders from January 20th to February 1st. So it was wow. more than 3,000. It wasn't quite 10,000, but it was, you know, I'm glad that we upped it, right? Um, that we yeah. upped our preparation. And, and that was really split between Shopify and Amazon. Um, mm. So we definitely got, it, it was kind of 50-50, honestly. It was like 3,000 orders Shopify, 3,000 orders Amazon. And then, of course, our retail partners also saw a huge lift. Like Nordstrom and Credo had like a, you know, 300% increase in orders as well. Wow. So that was, that's good for you know, that was great for us with those retail partners. Um, It was really about the preparation to make sure nothing broke, you know, not even just inventory, but like, is your SMS set up? Are your email flows like, are they talking? Are they set up to talk to like new people who have no idea who you are? You know, give them some education, like what is a Nopal, you know, whatever. Mm -hmm. And, you know, make sure that our customer support agent like was going to be like online, you know, uh, make sure that like our ticketing platform, everything like, do we need to update our FAQs? Like we updated our website, like, you know, FAQs, product pages. We had our photographer like make new videos of like how to use the lotion bar, how to use the scrub, you know, up, put those on the on the PDPs. Uh, so that's the kind of preparation we did, which I, which I think worked really well. And I'm glad we did all of that. Um, obviously, you know, the more you get, the more you get of everything, right? So um, the most popular item was definitely our lotion bar. It was also the most returned item on Amazon because people just don't know what a lotion bar is, you know? Oh. And there's a lot of customer education that is required. Um, and anyone out there that has a product, you know, in CBG as well, that has, that requires customer education. They know that it's like a really heavy lift to to teach people how a new thing works or what it does. So I don't know what people were expecting. They thought it was going to be like a roll on, you know what I mean? Mm, Like people were like, it doesn't glide. I'm like, did you think this is like a dry idea deodorant that's going to glide on your skin? (laughs) Like this is a natural product, you know? But, um, but obviously, you know, it's always easy to focus on like negative, you know, reviews, but overwhelmingly positive, right? So still like, you know, we did um, about 300,000 in sales, um, you know, for for that um, from like January 20th to like February 1st. Wow. Yeah, that's that's very that's very interesting. And I, I found it really interesting when you were talking with your team on on your show about prepping. I, I thought it was such a good angle that you mentioned as well of just like, OK, you know, often people are finding like, what lens do I need to look at our emails, our website, everything through as someone who just saw this on television, they may Mm -hmm. not even have social media or have seen this on social media. So they have no context. Like, how do I look at everything with those eyes? And I was like, Oh, that's so interesting. Because you know, your your other maybe normal, you know, customer flows are totally different. Somebody that just saw it on TV and is like, Oh, that lotion bar looked cool. 
Um, yeah. They need they need so much more education and such a different journey. So that that's really yeah. interesting. Yeah. Yeah, you do have to, I think periodically it's good for every company to just even quarterly, I guess, at the at the minimum, like comb through all of your assets, you know, your website, your flows to make sure that they are still relevant, that they're that they're really talking to the people that they're meant to talk to and, you know, all of that. Yeah. And ongoing. And speaking of Amazon, is that something that you set up knowing that you might air on Shark Tank or how did you how did you think about Amazon was that a channel you'd been in before and what kind of prep went into into to prepping Amazon for Shark Tank yeah you know Amazon was not on our roadmap i actually was not planning to launch on Amazon until like this year and you know once i was going through the process of Shark Tank and it seemed it felt positive like okay i think I think I'm moving forward to the final round. Like, and by the way, they never really tell you what round you're in. <laughs> you're, you're like, you're like, am I in the finals right now? Like, have I made it yet? And like, they literally tell you until the till the moment you air that like your episode might not air. Like, they have to keep reminding you. It's so nerve wracking. I'm like, can we tell people? Are we allowed to promote this yet? Like, I don't understand. Even in the congratulations email, Jesse, it was like, congratulations, your episode has been scheduled to air. Your episode might not air. Like, oh my gosh, <laughs> they still have to tell you that. Um, but you know, so Amazon, um, my other founder friends who, you know, were on the show were like, you have got to be on Amazon. Like everyone's going to go there. You're going to lose thousands of dollars if you don't, if you're not on Amazon. So, um, so I reached out to my good friend, Jesse Freitag of the Startup CPG <laughs> podcast. And I asked her for any recommendations for an Amazon agency. And she recommended one, um, who was really good. And so I got, I had no bandwidth to like run Amazon myself. I mean, this was like back in September. I was like literally in the middle of fundraising, like trying yeah. to close this deal. I was in like five million accelerators. You know, I was like a team of two. And so back then, and so um, thank God for the agency, like, you know, here's all the assets, here's all the pictures, you know, and they built the page, they got it up and running. We got the inventory there and, um, you know, started to spend a little bit on ads, like not very much compared to what we spend, you know, on, you know, on the D2C side. Um, and, and thank God it worked, you know, like, again, $90,000 just from Amazon yeah. because of Shark Tank, you know, and now it's like at a new level, like now it's like consistently at like $1,000 a day, like with us not really having to do anything just because it's just been the brand awareness is there. Um, and I guess the algorithm, honestly, I haven't tried to shop for myself on Amazon yet. But um, so so that's cool, right? It's like, obviously, the big buzz dies down at some point, but like you're at a new plateau than right, you were before. Yeah. Sets you at that higher bar. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Because when you said that the sales were kind of split 50-50 between Amazon and your website, I'm, that, that was way more of it for Amazon than I was expecting. So that's... Wow. Yeah. And I mean, I will say like it's 50-50 in terms of number of orders, but in terms of dollar value, much higher on our on our Shopify site because mm. the average order value is so much higher. And on Amazon, people are buying like one thing. Yeah. You know, I think like the average, you know, units per order is like 1.2 or something. Like maybe people are buying two things, but people are mostly buying like one item. Whereas on Shopify, they're buying like the bundle, right? It's like $130. And so much higher average order value. And did you, did you, were most the orders for your bundle that you just mentioned or were people do, did did you see a mix or did a lot of people go for that that bundle and what kind of thinking went into that where you you know I, I see founders uh you know often put together like a, a bundle for shark tank so kind of curious about that yeah i i once we got the you know the green light that it was going to air slash maybe not air yeah <laughs> i was like okay we have to make because i knew how the episode went i was like right i know that i said this is how i know how it ends you know so Let's create a bundle that like is about that. And um, because we just don't have that many SKUs, I was like, let's just put all of our SKUs in it. You know, yeah. it's literally like our entire line um, with the exception of like merch. And I think, and yeah, a lot of people bought the bundle. A lot of people bought the bundle because um, they're just so excited. They're like, I, it's just an easy click. It's like one click. They don't have to yeah. think. And and a lot of people, if they didn't buy the bundle, they bought a, another bath set, which is again, like three items. So not really, people don't really come to our website to buy like one item. Yeah. You know, which is good. Yeah. Very interesting. I also, um, this is going back a little bit to Shark Tank, but I had heard when we had Rosa from Wild Wonder on the podcast about Shark Tank, she was saying that your like first couple minute pitch, like that all is like pre-done and like they're like paying attention to like what you're going to wear and like all, can you talk a little bit about some of the like vetting what it looks like to get that first couple minutes of your pitch together. Cause that was really interesting to me that I was like, well, yeah, you are on national TV and they don't want to cut that any, have any cuts in there. So it has to be just the way, you know, has to be okay to be on the, the airwaves. Yes. And, you know, to your point of like the vetting, I mean, I had to submit pictures of my tattoos, Jesse. 
Like, oh my gosh. <laughs> I think they need to make sure my tattoos don't say like a curse word. You know what yeah. I mean? Or it doesn't have like a yeah. swastika or something. You know what I mean? So, um, and they only asked me to do that because I... I was in California at the time and for the like the month of the filming. And so I got to drive to the studio to drop off my display. Like most people have to mail it in. I just drove up from San Diego and I just dropped off my, you know, my cactus and whatever. And so they saw me in a tank top. And so they saw my tattoos and then they were like, oh, can you send us pictures of your tattoos? But yeah, everything is vetted. They need like three outfit choices. Like there's a Google oh. folder with pictures of your outfits, you know, <laughs> um, because they also need to make sure that it works on, on camera, like st no stripes, no polka dots. Right. You know, nothing that's going to, I forget the word, but it like, it warps the, the camera. Um, like it's like moir or something. I forget the word, but anyway, um, everything is vetted. The pitch to your point is a hundred percent rehearsed, like perfected, memorized, you know? And so the trick is like, you have to make it come across natural. Like you're just walking mm -hmm. in and being like, Hey sharks, yeah, I'm Sandra. <laughs> and here's just, here are my thoughts for today. You know, it's not that at all. It's completely rehearsed completely memorized and crafted, right? So you get to first draft the first pitch and then like the, your producers that you're assigned to like help you cut it down or edit it or like refine it. Um, but a lot of what I originally wrote is like in there, you know, and I noticed that when my episode aired, they actually still edited things out. Like oh, they wow. didn't, they didn't actually show the entire pitch, but everything they showed was like the most important parts, you know? I also noticed, I think it was the next morning that Daniel Lubetsky, the founder of Kind, had like tweeted about No Palera. Like, what yeah. was it like to wake up to that? Like, was that a like, was that yes. kind of a nice little bonus uh, uh, in always, the morning? Always, always. I was like, yes, fist bump, you know, fellow Mexicano. And, uh, you know, he obviously is a very nice person. I mean, he, he really is kind, you know, um, yeah. and and he really is that way. And I think that he just, you know, he wanted to support us, even though like no deal was made. He, he wanted to use his platform to help fuel business, you know, or, you know, people to our site or just anything. And um, and so that was I really appreciated that. So I hope to one day be able to meet him and thank him. <laughs> yeah, well, and then I'd love to talk a little bit about your recent fundraise as, you know, mm -hmm. then as well. So uh, so that closed, you know, by the time it aired, that had, you know, closed. Uh, yeah. and, but can you tell us a little bit about kind of the fundraising process? Um, anything that was kind of, you know, surprising in there? I know you already mentioned a few things, but just kind of curious about some of your other insights, because I know everything mm -hmm. that you do, you which I love about you, like you're such a documenter, like uh, you document everything. <laughs> you're so, so intentional. So I'm like, you know, if there's anybody I want to learn how they, you know, how they went about the fundraise process, like your insights are, I know, just super helpful. Uh, yeah, well, I have to, you know, chalk that up to being raised by a homicide detective, Jesse. So my father taught me to document everything. <laughs> so that's why, I'm a, that's why I'm such like a, you know, crazy documenter. Um, so I think one of my biggest learnings from the fundraise, just to like zoom out a bit, is to what I learned and I, what I experienced firsthand, which still kind of blows my mind, is that money begets money. Like once you have money, people want to give you more money. And this is both how life is and also how, why life is unfair. Right. Because the people that don't have the money are the ones that need it. Mm -hmm. And it's kind of like how people give things to celebrities for free. It's like they actually have money to buy things, but yet people will just want to give them things for free. And um, I always, you know, in the back of my mind, I always think back to like Arlen Hamilton, you know, the the uh, the VC from Backstage Capital, you know, who has an amazing story. Right. She was like homeless. Then she, like you know, raised her first fund. And, you know, she's a black woman. And she always says, like, you know, if you don't have the money, you have to become the money. And that's truly what I experienced during my fundraise, because it really takes a lot of, you know, audacity, courage, self-belief, mindset, everything to show up to these pitch meetings and and even though you are desperate for money, like, please, somebody give me a thousand dollars. You have to show up like, I don't need it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, like, nope, you need me. And that's how, you, you know, that's like the vibe that you have to bring to these meetings. Obviously, you also have to be extremely informed and like know all your numbers and all of that. But just the attitude, right? Because people want to invest in people with big ideas. People want to invest in visionaries who are going to, you know, build the next, you know, $100 million brand. People want to invest in CEOs who are going to build that, you know, million dollar team, right? And so if you show up and you are not confident, like that does not give confidence to the investor to want to invest in you. Mm -hmm. So you can't let, you can't wait for the money to be given to you to have the confidence. You have to have the confidence first and then the money will come to you. And that is, um, it's not easy, right? And not everyone is built for that type of pressure, you know? Um, 
So that was one of my biggest takeaways. I literally had zero contacts, Jesse, when I started. Like I did not even know, how do I even find the VCs? How do I find the people with the money? That was me, right? And now I'm on the other side where I literally have investors reaching out to me now, like literally like this week, someone just wrote to me, two people wrote to me, can I get on your list? You know, are you still taking investment? And I'm like, where were you back in June when I was like crying on the floor, you know? And it's because once people, also investors are just normal people with FOMO, right? Mm -hmm. So let's also say that they're not, they're not superior human beings. They're just people like everyone else. Nobody wants to be first on the dance floor. So once someone's first on the dance floor, everybody wants to get on the dance floor, right? Once you have, you know, 2.7 million, then people are like, is it too late? I literally had to turn people down like at the end of my fundraise because I was like, I need this to close. I need the money to go into the bank. Like, you know, but it's just that that was wild to me, you know, that that and like being able to experience that was really wild. Um, So I, you know, how I met people was literally just I enrolled in a lot of not enrolled. I applied to a lot of accelerators, any kind Mm -hmm. of cohort that would put me in the room with investors or people that knew investors, because once you meet one, Jesse, you meet three. Yeah. You know, just like once because all the rich people hang out together, they play golf (laughs) together, just like all the poor people know each other. You know, it's literally the same. We all live in our economic bubbles. And they're no different. And so you just meet one and then they're like, oh, let me introduce you to so-and-so, you know, but it does require effort on you, on our part, the founders to go put ourselves into new rooms. Yeah. How long did it take from like when you're like, all right, I'm going to start fundraising to that, like that. Yes. Where somebody's like, all right, I'm going to lead the round. And then kind of all the dominoes fall of everybody getting FOMO. Like how Mm -hmm. long was that process? It felt like a million years, but it was not. <laughs> it was really only like, I think I started, you know, in June. So it was, and then, and people warned me, they were like, the summer is a terrible time to raise. All the rich people are on vacation. And I was like, well, that's too bad because I need to raise. <laughs> so it was a little slow, like in August, you know, where I was like starting to get nervous, like, okay, I need people to write me back. I need, you know, um, I need someone to say yes. And um, so it was like June, July, August, and then sept- by September, it was when, you know, I got the lead investor and then the angels, I had already been kind of talking to angels, but the angels kind of came all in at once at the end, you know, again, Mm -hmm. like that FOMO, like, you know, um, so that was really interesting. Like two individual, like I have six angels, uh, two individuals who are actually, who actually work for the lead investor invested personally. Oh, and so that was really fascinating because they're seeing the deal happen, right? They're, They're part of that team, but they wanted to personally invest, right? As angels. So, um, I have two angels that are, you know, that work for the lead investor, which is interesting. Yeah. Wow. And what does it look like, you know, kind of operationally, like, you know, the day to day of doing that fundraising? Like, are you connecting with people via email? Is it video calls? Like, do, were, were there in-person events with like the accelerators and events you participated in, like getting in those, you know, was it physical rooms you were sometimes mm-hmm. getting in? And also as part of that, Like, how did you intentionally kind of set up your team to make sure that the rest of the business kept running to give you enough bandwidth to do the fundraising that is so much work? Yes, that last part is the hard part, right? Because most people that are fundraising for the first time, they don't have a team. Yeah. So you are like trying to do it all. And that is honestly the hardest thing. Because fundraising, as everyone tells you, is a full-time job. It's not like a full full full-time job, but it's like more than a part-time job. Yeah. (laughs) You know, I'll say it's like a three-quarters job. And I didn't meet anyone necessarily in person. I was mostly Zoom meetings um, and just asking for introductions through other, you know, other investors. Uh, I started, you know, I joined Twitter to kind of follow other investors. A lot lot of VCs are on Twitter just to kind of follow what they're saying, what they're thinking, you know. Um, And there was definitely a lot of cold outreach, you know, like, hi, you know, you don't know me, but, you know, so-and-so recommended you. Obviously, if you can ever get a warm lead, that's always the best. And a lot of investors say that. But again, when you're starting from the outside, like how, if you know no one, how are you supposed to start? You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like you need someone to first let you in the castle wall, you know, to introduce you to someone so you can in, like meet more people. So it's just a lot of cold outreach, a lot of emails. And then like that hopefully led to Zoom meetings um, and, you know, using DocSend, you know, for my pitch deck to be able to to give people private links, you know, mm-hmm. that weren't downloadable. You don't want like millions of versions of your pitch deck floating around out into the universe, especially because you're always updating it. You know, like every time you have a meeting, you're like, okay, so that was interesting. They they were confused about this point. Let me clarify that in the deck. You know, I think by the end, I was like on version seven of my pitch deck. Right. So, uh, yeah. So it's, it, I'm glad that it's over. Like I'm, it, it was one of the hardest things I've ever had to do. Also because I didn't know what I was doing. You know, mm-hmm. like if you've never done it, like, 
you're trying to understand like, what is my valuation? Like what? <laughs> and then you have to go on and present like, you know, exactly what the next five years of your life are going to look like. Right. Um, and so, you know, in terms of my team, my team was like two people at that point. So it was really like Sam, our marketing manager, me, and we had an intern helping her in marketing. So Edith, who's now full time is was an intern at the time. And then my partner, Sean, who was like dealing with all like logistics, you know, um, so I did have help. I wasn't like, I'm, you know, wasn't a solo founder, but it's not like how it is now where we have like full time VP of sales, full time director of ops, you know, so that that's really challenging. Like my, you know, my heart goes out to all founders who are in that like team of one or team of two, like trying to run the business and also fundraise. Yeah. Did you feel like your like sales experience helped come in handy with the sending emails, getting people to open a cold email, tracking your follow ups? Like, I feel like there's so much similarities that that like tenacity and systems you developed in sales would Mm -hmm. would, even though it's really hard, would apply to the fundraising world a lot. Oh, 100%. I think if you ever have any sales experience, it's so valuable because so much of it is no, 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 no. And just getting ignored that you can't be phased by that, you know, and you just really have to be like, you just know that all you need is one yes, you know, so it's it's really just a math game. If you for every 10 people you reach out to one person writes you back, then that means you need to reach out to like 30 people if you want three people to get back to you. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. It just becomes like a math game. So yeah, definitely that work in sales and and also being a musician, like I used to write, book my own tours and like so many people would ignore my emails, you know, and then one person would write me back and, you know, it felt great. So I have a lot of experience with with rejection and that is very, very useful. Right. Yeah. And how so when you're when the funding raise like when the fundraise round closes, how long from like, all right, it's full. Nobody else. Nobody else can get in no matter how much they want to get in to like money in the bank minus, like you said, legal fees, which is just really important note. But like, how long did that take? Because I feel like it's another piece of like, all right, we raised a bunch of money, but like, it's another thing for everybody to actually wire transfer the money and it all to come and for you to be able to like start using it. How did that work? Yeah, it it wasn't, again, it felt like a million years, but it wasn't. Um, fortunately, my lead investor was generous enough to give us an advance like a promissory note. I was like, I need 250K like tomorrow, like yesterday, actually, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, before like, well, as we're waiting for the, for the real money to come through. So they did. And that was super helpful because we had outstanding purchase orders. Like we had, we had money bills that were due, you know, mm-hmm. it was a really tight spot to be in like, it, I mean, it, it's, it's, it feels really weird to be like, you feel like you're about to go out of business, but like $2 million is about to be deposited into your bank account, you mm-hmm. know? Um, and so luckily they gave me an advance. So that was great. And the only thing that slowed it up was like just paperwork. Like, the more, I guess, my advice to other founders is like all of your corporate documents, all of your, you know, your board, all of those terms, you know, have those done, you know, and approved because those are the things that can hold you up. So and that and like the due diligence, one thing that I guess slowed us down a bit, again, it wasn't long, it felt like a long time at the time, but it wasn't really it was, uh, you know, the intellectual property piece, like they just, you know, I had, you know, it was like the back and forth with the lawyers of just like, you know, proving that the formulas were mine, proving that, you know, whatever, you know, and anything that could hold it back, like those are the things that they're trying to comb through, right? Because they want to eliminate any kind of liability. Um, so the more you can have those documents like done, you know, the, then you will have those. That's the only thing that holds it back, you know, it's like mm-hmm. you get caught in diligence of like on some point that they need clarification on, you know, and for me, like intellectual property was one of them. Wow. So what does it look like using the funds that you raised over the next year? Like what are kind of the next steps in scaling? You know, what's kind of next in in your planning and executing? <laughs> yeah, we just, you know, we just had our all hands team meeting this morning, actually. And we were talking about this point because, you know, we still have all the money in the bank, right? Because we have made money, right? So it's mm-hmm. like the balance hasn't really gone down. I mean, the balance went down in the beginning because we had bills due. So like a lot, yep. like hundreds of thousands of dollars went out the door like immediately. But that was like back that was last year, you know? And um, so, you know, we were talking about this, like, I I am always wrestling with like, we need to, you know, spend the money like to grow sales. But I also want to hold, I, I don't want to spend it too quickly, because I want to endure the recession, whatever that is, and however long that lasts, like, still no one really knows. I mean, we're all seeing the layoffs, you know, yeah. massive tech layoffs everywhere, you know, and so, but we it's it's going to be different, you know, than like the 2008 recession, like it's not going to look the same. Right. And so I think everyone is still trying to figure out like, what does this look like? What does this mean? You know? Um, and so it's like, it's like this balance of like spending the money, but also wanting to hold on to some of it. Uh, so really, you know, what it allows for us to do is to 
first of all, hire people. Obviously, that's what that's what everyone should do when they raise money, you know, mm-hmm. is hire a team and and then have a real marketing budget because, you know, any CPG brand, in my opinion, is actually running a marketing company. And yeah. I think it's I think it's naive to think that we're running ingredient companies or product companies, you know, like pasta is pasta right? Like soap is soap, you know, like, yes, we all have differences in our like tweaks in our formulations, but it's ultimately brand, you know, and it's like our, it's who we're talking to and how we're talking to them and which is marketing, right? Marketing is like how we talk to to people. So, you know, having a real marketing budget and like really allowing ourselves to kind of dream of like, what are the things we'd like to do? You know, what kind of activations would we like to have? Like, so we're starting to do like in-store activations. We're going to do, you know, agile last mile trucks, which I know Wild Wonder is doing it as well which are like, you know, basically billboards on trucks, you know, mm-hmm. um, and, you know, those are things that we would have never done before because we didn't, we couldn't afford them, you know, so doing those kinds of things, um, you know, investing in software that makes our life easier, you know, yeah. and, you know, that's what we've spent the money on so far. Having like a better accountant obviously costs more money, you know, um, so, and that's like, that's headcount, that's like team, you know, um, hiring the right people, having the right systems, um, and every, having like an R and D budget. Like now we can, you know, formulate new products, and you know that takes time and money. So it's kind of everything. We're using the money for all of the things, you know, that we that we really need. You know, mm-hmm. yeah, getting set, getting all the building blocks and everything in place to continue to just be able to keep working up the ladder and and scaling because it's easy to it can be easy to kind of try to skip a step or not set up some of those fundamental blocks. But if you can set them up and you and your team are so good about like documentation and, you know, I'm a systems nerd and everything. So I always appreciate what you share about building out systems and everything. (laughs) And so, yeah, I'm just that it's so important for scaling later. And the marketing piece is interesting too, like you said, because like we had Liquid Death on the show. It's a water company worth I mean, about $700 million. Like that's, it's all branding. Like it, yeah, I, that is like my favorite brand to talk about. It's just, I'm, I think everyone is just jealous of like how brilliant it is. I'm like, yeah, I, I just saw, where was I? I was in a store like over the weekend and it was like, what was the name of the flavor? It was like bury me alive, like bury, yeah. like B-E-R-R-Y. I was like, on the floor. I was like, I am dead. Oh my God. Yeah. This brand, like, couldn't they get any more brilliant? I can't take it. I know. Um, and yeah. So and I use the water category. It's literally my favorite category to explain the importance of brand yeah. because it's water. There yeah. is one ingredient and that ingredient is water. And if I pour out liquid death, Evian, you know, Essentia and Poland Spring all out into clear glasses of clear glasses, like they all look the same yeah. because it's not about the goddamn ingredients. No. You know, and yeah, I love the water category as that. It's just, it's like the perfect way to explain the importance of, of brand. Yeah. Are there some new product innovations that you can share about that? Like any lines that you're sharing or is it all is it all still kind of in the works? Um, I mean, I think we're allowed to share. We are working on, because, you know, as much as I wish that the whole world would switch to solids and we eliminate, you know, no, everyone would stop buying body wash and, you know, shampoo and plastic bottles of, you know, plastic, most of it is water, right? So you're like buying plastic bottles filled with water. Mm-hmm. Um, people love lotion and they love body wash. So we cannot deny people. Uh, we're not going to put it in plastic, though. So we are going to put it in aluminum. Mm. Uh, bottles that you will, you know, refill that we're going to make them beautiful. So you never want to throw them away. You know, they're going to be like centerpieces of your bathroom. Um, And so we're working on a body wash and a lotion. And obviously being able to make minis of things is also a new expense that we're able to, to afford because that's new molds, like the costing of the machinery to make minis of things like mini soaps. We're going to make mini cactus soaps, Um, you know, minis of the lotion and, you know, and and the body wash, like travel sets, you know, or gift sets, um, discovery sets, whatever you want to call them. Uh, So those, those are all things in the works. And of course, people continue to ask us, you know, for shampoo bars. So um, in the very early stages of, you know, exploring that, but um, the body wash and the lotion have been in the works for for several months. Nice. Oh, that's exciting. And yeah, I'm I'm team shampoo bar. I got it. Yeah. <laughs> I got it. I got to admit, I've been one of those people on Instagram. Yeah. I was like, yeah. what would you like us to come out? Shampoo, yeah, shampoo bar. bars. Yeah. Yeah. What What is your favorite <laughs> brand? Do you have one that you like? I've tried a lot. I mostly will buy whatever's at the farmer's market by our okay. house because then mm-hmm. I could just, you know, I could just take it home. No packaging yeah. involved. Um, yeah. But if I could buy it from Lopalera, I would yeah. do that instead. Okay. <laughs> we are working. Working on it. Yeah. It's a, it's a tricky thing to formulate because we always we obviously want to make them for different hair types, you know, and yeah. um and and yeah, and they're they're tricky to make um because 
um, you want it to be hard so that it doesn't melt. But if mm-hmm. it's like too hard, then you have to use ingredients that like make it drag on your hair, you know. Anyway, mm-hmm. I'm getting into like the weeds here. But yeah, we're we're early, early stages. I have a bunch of, you know, um concoctions in my kitchen right now, actually. <laughs> nice. Yeah. I love it. Because you have a formulation background. So you know, yeah. which I also love that you invested in yourself <laughs> and getting the formulation. So yeah, yeah, I think that's also so cool that you can still be involved in the formulation process and super informed and educated on it. Yeah. Yeah. Totally. So yeah, I tried to get rid of the formulation. My kitchen was a kitchen for a while there. I was like, I'm done with this. We have co-packers now. And now like, again, I've kind of like commandeered half the kitchen for like a formulation lab. <laughs> I love it. Well, I hope everyone follows, if they don't already, I hope they, they you know, follow along, go to Nopalera, N-O-P-A-L-E-R-A dot C-O. Um, as the website, follow nopalera.co on Instagram. Uh, you can go on Amazon, but, you know, get some Nopalera in your life if you haven't already. Watch the episode, which I'll link. Um, and yeah, I just I so appreciate you being here. I hope our listeners follow along and, you know, continue to keep following the journey. I'm super excited to and just so grateful for everything that you've shared with you're always sharing so much wisdom with the world and uh, yeah, just appreciate you so much and you coming on the show and sharing with our startup CPG audience. It, it means a lot. And yeah, I really appreciate you. Oh, I right back at you. I mean, what you guys have built, I feel like I was, you know, in the Slack channel when it was like hundreds of people and now it's mm-hmm. like over 10,000 people. So it's just amazing, you know, that, you know, the community that you guys have built and the time and energy that you guys commit to helping one another, you know, this kind of thing did not exist like 10 years ago, you know, yeah. like everyone was literally on their own, you know, suffering alone. And now, you know, the community just really is, is just key, you know, to key to everyone's like survival and mental health, everything, you know? Yeah. Awesome. Well, so thank, thank you, you so much. <laughs> Thanks for being here and hope to, hope to see you in real life at some point as well. Yes, for sure. For sure. Thank you for listening in today. I'm so honored you joined me for this conversation and I love hearing from you all with feedback, suggestions, or if you just want to say hi at podcast at startupcpg.com or you can find me on LinkedIn. If you liked this episode, we'd love for you to share it with a friend or colleague, subscribe so you don't miss future episodes, and maybe even leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. If you aren't yet in our Slack community of founders and experts, we'd love to see you there. You can get the free invite at startupcpg.com and find all our other awesome resources there like webinars, databases, the blog, the magazine, and virtual and in-person events. Today's intro and outro music were a special feature of guest Sandra's band, Pistolera. Keep listening to hear the whole song Nuevos Ojos featured in season four, episode 12 of Breaking Bad. I'm Jesse Freitag, your host and producer, and on behalf of the whole team at Startup CPG, thank you for being here and see you next week. <laughs>